Party of Great Britain and Labour Party Marxists. This week, it's a week in politics. Uh, I presume it's going to be all about the Duke or the Duck. Okay, uh, Jack Conrad for the Provisional Central Committee. Go ahead, Jack. Okay, comrades. Um, thank you very much, Stan. Uh, no, it's not going to be all about the Duck. Uh, this is from my um, favourite Western, um, The Unforgiven. Um, I don't know if anyone remembers the scene of the, uh, anyway, that's not why about going there. I just can't resist sometimes calling the Duke the duck. But anyway, um, I think what was sort of interesting about the 30 attendees of uh, yesterday's funeral at uh, Windsor was the uh, German uh, contingent. Um, interesting why. Well, because um, here we have on display, I think, the nature of um, the, um, the British monarchy, but also the European uh, monarchy. Um, famously, um, the Duke of Edinburgh met someone, I don't know whether it was in French-speaking Canada or France, and um, whoever it was congratulated him as an Englishman in speaking such fluent uh, French. And uh, he put this guy down instantly and said, well, I'm not English. And I was speaking French before you were born. And the point would be that actually when it comes to nationality and then dealing with the aristocracy of a certain period of history, uh, the term nationality becomes, how she put it, um, a partial truth, if not an untruth. Here you are, here's an individual who was born famously on a table in Corfu, who is closely related to the, um, uh, the ruling uh, monarch uh, in Greece. And that's just worthwhile investigating. And this is from a German-Danish family uh, that was invited into Greece, I think this would be in 1862 or three. I can't quite remember. And there was basically a debate amongst the European powers of who was going to replace the disgraced previous monarch, who again wasn't Greek. Um, and uh, the initial proposal put forward by the Greeks was that it should be Prince Albert um, Victoria's uh, consort and uh, other powers thought that was a bit off to basically hand Greece over uh, to Victoria's uh, uh, husband. So they came up with a compromise and the compromise was uh, this um, house of um, Hesse. I can't remember its full damn name, uh, but this was, uh, I think they put in... Um, was it someone of Bavaria, Olo of Bavaria, I think. Either way, the point is made. And if we take Philip, who, as I say, was closely related uh, to the uh, king uh, of Greece, um, after the, um, the fall of that uh, royal house in the early uh, 20s, it's interesting that um, his mother... Uh, married uh, off her children in the main uh, to 
German high aristocrats. So I think he had either four or five sisters, all who married Germans, most of whom, at least to my knowledge, ended up uh, being very close to Hitler, serving in the SS. Um, Philip, on the other hand, um, toured around Europe, did a bit of France, did a bit of Germany, um, but basically decided, I think because of his uncle, uh, Louis uh, Montbatten, to opt uh, for Britain. Um, so in other words, you know, if you, if you ask what nationality uh, he was, you could argue maybe that he was English by adoption or, or British if you want. Um, you could say that he was German by origin and that wouldn't be completely off. But then again, if we actually look at the, the aristocracy of this uh, period, they basically married other aristocrats from other ruling houses. And of course, that had been the norm going way back um, into the, uh, the Middle Ages. And therefore, of course, if you take um, uh, Queen Victoria, um, you know, she was the great grandmother of a whole slew of uh, different ruling uh, houses. And of course, in World War I, uh, you famously had the Kaiser, uh, the Tsar and the uh, King of uh, the United Kingdom, um, you know, who were related, closely related to each other, supposedly fighting it out uh, uh, with each other. And I have to say that if you take Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, he chose wisely. Uh, the idea that his was a life of self-sacrifice is a bit difficult uh, to swallow. Uh, yes, he served in the uh, British Navy, um, but hey, here you are, you know, seemingly a penniless uh, aristocrat. Um, he adopts uh, Britain as his home. And, you know, could you do better than, than marry the future queen? Um, I would say as an aristocrat, you know, he not only chose his... Um, country uh, wisely. He also chose his uh, bride uh, uh, wisely. So he lived a, a pampered life, uh, a life where he could indulge, you know, his whims. Um, not a life I would uh, uh, want, but if you're a high aristocrat, I think that's about the best you were going to get uh, in, in Europe. Okay, um, last week, of course, we had the announcement of his death. And uh, I think to me, the sort of slightly gladdening um, um, phenomenon of uh, the BBC receiving a record number of complaints about the coverage of uh, uh, the death of the Duke. Um, I first heard it on Radio 3 and the, the, the music went dead. And instantly I said to myself, oh, it must be that, it, well, it's it, either it's an interruption in the broadcast. And as soon as they started speaking in a solemn tone, I went to myself, oh, the Duke of Edinburgh. And I knew that this was Radio 4. So I tried Radio 4 Extra. Same thing. I don't know how wide it was, but it seemed to me just looking at, um, you know, the iPlayer sort of facility that it was wall to wall uh, Duke of Edinburgh. And as a result of that, what we saw is on TV, BBC One drop its regular audience by 6%, BBC Two by 65%, uh, ITV down by 60%, and Channel Four uh, down by 8.5%. And okay, the BBC received a record number of complaints. Also worthwhile pointing out 
uh, that they then dropped that facility. So, yes, they received a record number of complaints. We're told 100,000. But clearly that was the tip uh, of um, uh, an iceberg. Now, I don't know why people objected. Was it that they had no choice? Was it the deference? Was it because there's a sort of quite wide body of Republicans out there? I don't know. Um, either way, it rather gladdened my heart, I have to say, uh, uh, hearing, hearing that um, information. Um, we then had, again, on the, um, uh, I should put it, Psy side of the equation, um, Keir Starmer rushing in uh, to offer his condolences and to praise uh, the Duke in terms of his self-sacrifice and the, the extraordinary contribution that he made to British life. Uh, apparently that was breaking with royal protocol because he should have waited, apparently, I don't know anything about these things, he should have waited for Boris Johnson. Uh, if it wasn't spoken, if it was only read out uh, by a BBC uh, announcer, I, I, I wouldn't for the life of me be able to spot the difference between Keir Starmer uh, on the one side and Boris Johnson um, on the other. I couldn't spot the ex-trot. I couldn't spot the ex-Etonian. Uh, uh, they were both um, equally the same, equally fawning uh, before uh, the Duke, and uh, not just in terms of the loss that uh, that particular family had suffered, but this blow uh, to the nation itself. And in, in the words of, uh, I thought quite interesting words, although overblown, if only it was true, uh, Boris Johnson's words, that it's the monarchy that uh, keeps Britain together. Um, you know, if you, if you were into um, busting apart the system, almost a recommendation for um, turning to, you know, assassination. Uh, along the lines of the um, Narodniks in uh, Tsarist uh, uh, Russia. And uh, um, much to my disappointment, um, after Jeremy Corbyn initially seemingly ignoring the death uh, of the Duke, um, he, he jumped into action and basically offered uh, again um, fawning, fawning praise to the Duke and uh, what a loss. Um, he was uh, to the uh, the rest of his um, family. The the standout to me, of course, was the leader of the Scottish Greens, um, Patrick um, Harvey, who, while he expressed his uh, sorrow in terms of uh, the family, made the point that in the middle of the pandemic, when we've had how many deaths in in Britain, we're sort of approaching the 150,000th, um, the, the loss of one man, you know, however regrettable, you know, everyone else has been treated uh, as a statistic. Uh, and uh, what was interesting is precisely he made his uh, republicanism known and basically called for the abolition of the monarchy. I wish that Jeremy Corbyn, who calls himself uh, a republican, you know, could have shown... Um, uh, equal courage. Uh, you know, Jeremy Corbyn is uh, suspended still uh, from the Labour Party. Um, you know, I don't know whether he's going to get back in. Does he think that sort of bad behaviour is going to stop him coming uh, back into the Labour Party? But it struck me that precisely here's a moment to nail one's colours 
uh, uh, to the mask. Far from just offering human condolences, here's the time for politicians to make a political uh, stand and Republicans should be Republican and leave the royalists uh, to the fawning uh, before uh, royalty. Uh, Republicanism, in our view, shouldn't be a platonic question, shouldn't be a private question. It's something that we should seek to agitate uh, around, not because we just object to aristocratic privilege, but because of the actual constitutional role uh, that the monarchy plays uh, uh, in, in Great Britain. And with that in mind, it's worthwhile thinking about uh, the Duke uh, and uh, the, the whole constitutional uh, question. Um, he, he's, of course, uh, famous for his so-called gaffes, uh, as in the early 60s in uh, Paraguay, um, addressing, was it General Strassner? Someone along those lines, who was a military dictator, and saying, well, it's really great to be in a country uh, that isn't ruled by its people. Now, you can call that a gaffe, and on one level it's true. Actually, I think it reflects uh, the outlook uh, of that class. Uh, th this class is not naturally democratic. It might be democratic by convenience. It might want to put on a show uh, of democracy, but in, in reality, by definition, the monarchy has to be an anti-democratic uh, institution. And this, remember, uh, when the Times ran uh, a famous editorial uh, talking about uh, Britain becoming ungovernable. This was in the period of the Pentonville Five, of revolting students, the Vietnam War, uh, the 1972 miners' strike, the 1974 miners' strike. Uh, and we had uh, uh, rumors, and I think they were well-founded rumors, about this thing called uh, Operation Clockwork Orange. Uh, of where uh, Montbatten, the uncle, uh, uh, and uh, various members of the military high command uh, were plotting uh, to carry out a military coup against the Harold Wilson government. And this was also in the conditions of where various people in the secret uh, state uh, were talking about Harold Wilson being a Russian spy. So famously, uh, the army being moved into Heathrow was done without the, the knowledge or the permission um, of the government and was widely viewed as a sort of dry run uh, by the army uh, in terms of a wider uh, operation. The rumour was that it would be Montbatten who would head uh, 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 that, that uh, uh, government um, uh, who knows? We'll have to uh, see when we actually have access uh, to the files. But uh, that is where uh, the spirit of the monarchy lies. That's the spirit uh, of where uh, the Duke of uh, uh, Edinburgh uh, uh, lies. Okay, uh, moving on away from uh, royalty to uh, the May the 6th. Uh, elections. I'll be interested to see what uh, or hear what other comrades have to say. Uh, but for what it's worth, the advice of the uh, Provisional Central Committee is to vote Labour with a heavy heart and with no enthusiasm. What we would say for comrades to the comrades in the Labour Party, if you can find them, search out a left wing, you know, local 
candidate, but they're going to be very few and far uh, between. Um, why are we saying that? Well, basically, when it comes to what else is on offer, uh, we don't see anything particularly worthwhile. We don't see anything uh, that offers a way forward. We think that Tusk is hopeless, the trade union and socialist coalition being promoted by the uh, spew by the Socialist Party in England and Wales. Basically what they're promising, and they're perfectly open and honest about that, is a Labour Party Mark II, but with the promise uh, that it won't go where Labour Party Mark I went. Well, why? How? What's to stop it? They even give the trade union uh, representatives on the um, Tusk leadership a veto power, uh, something that uh, trade unions don't even have uh, and, ne and never have had uh, uh, in uh, the Labour Party. Um, so we don't really see um, any positive, um, 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 you know, in the way of other parties standing um, in the election. Uh, we think that where the left is standing, it represents a hopeless uh, stand. If the comrades in the Socialist Party were standing on a worthwhile programme, uh, with a worthwhile perspective, even if we disagreed with it, that would be another matter. But they stand on a sub-reformist uh, programme um, for all their trade union and socialist coalition. There's precious little about socialism uh, in terms of their platform. This is really a reformed capitalism uh, that they're recommending. They're not even putting forward a perspective uh, that is worthy of the name reformism that at least posited some sort of break with capitalism somewhere further uh, uh, down uh, the line. Now, in their world, profit continues, wage labour uh, uh, continues, nations uh, uh, continue. Okay, um, right. Just worthwhile mentioning Scotland. Um, the war between Salmond and Sturgeon continues. Interestingly, although it's a side issue, I think it is worthwhile flagging um, Sturgeon's attack on Salmon um, over um, his, his stance on um, the Scripples and the Salisbury poisoning. Um, as you know, um, Alex, uh, Alex, uh, Sa Alex Salmon, um, works for or, or appears on uh, Russia Today, he gets paid by Russia Today. I don't know what he thinks uh, in terms of um, his head, I can't get in there, uh, but what he comes out with is a, is a line saying we don't know who poisoned or who attempted uh, to kill um, this uh, double uh, agent. Well, to me, you start off with the term double agent and uh, my first protocol call um, is Russia, <laughs> you know, sorry, um, that's where my mind goes. I don't see why we need a, a, some sort of elaborate conspiracy saying it may be it was MI5. Um, I don't see why that works. Um, you know, the, the nature of conspiracies, it's someone sooner or later, and it usually is sooner speaks. So why is Salmon uh, expressing his doubts? Is it his paymaster? I don't know. But what's interesting is the attack by uh, uh, Nicola Sturgeon. And uh, she's full blasting him away um, for not only the Scripples and the Salisbury poisoning, but Russia's interference in the US elections. Well, come on guys, do you really think it was Russia 
that swung it to Trump. Uh, no, again, my uh, suspicion is that you start off with Obama. It was the Obama administration uh, that created the conditions uh, for Trump. It wasn't Putin what did it. Uh, it was the Democrats. And that might be sad news as far as uh, those who have illusions in the Democrats, you know, becoming more and more left wing and eventually leading uh, to Roosevelt's, Roosevelt's New Deal and somewhere along the line after that socialism. But the point would be that what, what that says is something about Nicola Sturgeon herself. And basically what she's trying to do is send a message and saying an independent Scotland would be safe in SNP, SNP hands. We are not going to rock uh, the international consensus. We're going to be under the domination uh, of US imperialism. Uh, indeed, we'll be a loyal servant of US imperialism as an independent country. That's the message I get uh, from her. And it's, it's worthwhile pointing out in that context, ironically, that it was Alex Salmond himself who shifted uh, the SNP from what might be viewed as a left nationalist uh, position of being against NATO, against the EU, against uh, a subordination uh, to the United States, to a position which accepted NATO, which accepted uh, the EU. Uh, previously, he'd been kicked out of the SNP um, because of his leftism. It was he, paradoxically, that shifted it to a respectable position. But now, of course, in terms of how the personal and the political uh, interact, uh, he's positioning himself as the more radical uh, uh, element in the Scottish independence uh, movement. So he's talking about uh, the street. He's talking about, um, um, how should you put it, um, civil disobedience, uh, when inevitably the Boris Johnson government, if there's an SNP majority, or maybe even a super majority uh, with um, Salmon's party uh, added in, when they don't grant them uh, an independence uh, referendum. Uh, and so Nicola Sturgeon is talking about now uh, no independence referendum immediately because of COVID. In other words, she's retreating. She's trying to avoid being forced down a Catalan road. And it's Alex Salmond uh, that's pushing uh, the movement uh, in that direction. How it works out, I don't know, but it would seem to me uh, you know, just looking at the opinion polls, at least, uh, that we're uh, on the road to a super majority. The Scottish Parliament is designed to prevent a majority, remember. Um, hence the two ways of counting and hence the clever idea of, uh, you know, of standing as a separate party in the top up system. This is something that Alex Salmon took from another formation and ran with. Uh, that should actually be a lot more successful if you want independence to vote for Alex Salmon's Alba party than it would uh, to vote for the SNP. Because what we have is a system of disproportionate representation uh, when it comes to the PR section um, um, of the election uh, system. Anyway, if someone wants to go, go down and investigate that, they're very welcome. But take it from me. Uh, that is what we have. So this stuff about Russia, uh, this stuff about uh, uh, RT, um, 
is in reality about, I think at least, about a bigger uh, picture. I don't go with Alex Salmond in terms of who was, who was responsible for giving the orders, but I don't just see it as a narrow issue uh, about recent history. I think this involves the politics of now, and it involves the politics of the immediate future uh, after the May the 6th um, elections in Scotland. Northern Ireland, rioting here, rioting there, in Belfast, this side of the Peace Wall, the other side of the Peace Wall, in Derry, in London Derry, um, in all part, you know, in all parts of Northern Ireland, what you see is uh, uh, evidence before your eyes that the Good Friday Agreement did not overcome sectarianism. What it did, it institutionalized sectarianism. So you have to have two parties uh, um, uh, locked in a government that hate each other. So you have the first minister at the moment from the unionist side who is locked in with a Republican nationalist from the other side. And that's how the entire system works. And I remember um, talking on this forum and being um, doubted, questioned, told that I was talking rubbish uh, when I said that the sectarian divide in Northern Ireland is worse now uh, than it was before the Good Friday Agreement. I haven't been to Northern Ireland uh, for some years, but I used to travel there reasonably frequently. And we had uh, schools uh, there uh, with the Irish Republican uh, Socialist Party. And I've been to their uh, Ardeshes and uh, we had contacts in the Sinn Féin and uh, uh, other elements uh, of the um, Republican uh, movement. But yes, if you look at that uh, agreement, which was supported by the left um, in a completely economistic fashion, that if we get rid of violence, uh, what we'll have is unity around pay questions. Well, you can have unity around pay questions, uh, but the border question, the national question hasn't gone away. And if you look at Belfast and you look at uh, uh, other areas, and I've been to Belfast and seen it with my own eyes and they haven't gone away, what you have is the city divided by these things called peace walls, which are just massive, massive towering uh, constructions um, that divide uh, the population physically one from the other. So although uh, if you went to Belfast city centre, uh, you could go to a bar and I wouldn't recognise who was from where. When you get to where people live, you are acutely conscious. And certainly this is before the Peace Walls. You know, uh, I can remember travelling by car uh, with comrades from the IRSP who were terrified uh, once you got into um, areas with red, white and blue um, uh, curbstones because all the curbstones in the nationalist Republican areas were the colours of the uh, Irish tricolour. Uh, and you knew what area you were in, but they feared for their lives. That would be the point I'm making. Um, you know, for me, I was a sort of revolutionary tourist and was sort of just, well, bloody hell sort of type uh, uh, idea. For them, uh, this was being in enemy territory and that still applies. So I think the left made a big mistake tying itself in uh, to the Good Friday uh, deal. I can understand why uh, the Republican movement surrendered. It did surrender. It was thoroughly infiltrated, but it banked 
basically on the Americans. And it banked also um, on demography and, uh, you know, i.e. that the Catholics in the North would outbreed uh, um, the Unionists. And at the moment, uh, when they're looking at those figures and when they're looking at Brexit, they feel vindicated. They think that history is on their side. And it's the loyalists, it's the Unionists uh, that look at Boris Johnson's lie when he said there would be no border between uh, Britain uh, and Northern Ireland and there would be no border between the two parts of Ireland. You know, one of them had to be untrue. And what it turned out to be, of course, is that it was the border, uh, the no border between Britain and Northern Ireland that was untrue. So from a unionist point of view, uh, they felt betrayed. This is not the Brexit we voted for. Uh, that's their message. And they are looking to walk forward towards, with dread, um, Sinn Féin agitating successfully for a border poll, because an awful lot of people um, in Northern Ireland uh, basically say uh, that, well, you know, our, our bread is buttered on the side of the EU. Why can't we be fully in the EU? Um, so anyway, either way, uh, this is a, a population that views itself uh, under siege. And, and so what we have in terms of uh, reaction here, of course, is young people, but it does reflect something deeper and something more profound amongst the uh, loyalist stroke unionist stroke Protestant uh, population. Um, here in Britain, we've had uh, a big scandal in our fee-paying um, schools about sexism, about young women um, um, saying that they've been sexually harassed, uh, uh, raped uh, even. Um, so there's a, um, everyone is invited um, 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 web uh, a presence which loads of people are sort of signing up to and uh, telling uh, their story. Of course, the authorities would want to get the police involved. That isn't an approach we would uh, support. We're not in favor of criminalizing uh, uh, young men. But the question then is, is this confined to public schools? Well, from my experience, from my knowledge, it would be absolutely not. Why it's called a, caused a scandal is because uh, the first sort of exposure of this was Highgate School uh, and other top people's uh, schools. Uh, but in reality, if you take any um, state school, um, uh, do attacks happen? Uh, of course they do. Um, does harassment happen? Of course uh, 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 it, it, it does. So something more profound uh, needs to change. Okay, a quick comment also I think is worthwhile on the incident, the um, uh, accident as it has been called, which is obviously no accident that blew up part of the, um, part of Iran's nuclear facility at Nantans. Uh, this follows from um, a, a similar attack a year ago uh, the Iranian authorities have put out a picture of someone uh, who they're blaming. Uh, but again, just like in my view, not saying I know everything, uh, but it is a bit like, well, who ordered the attack on the Skripals? Who ordered the attack on this nuclear facility? It's Israel. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's obvious. And you almost have to disprove it before you actually say 
it's anybody else. It's obviously Israel. Why now? Uh, it isn't just because um, Iran, uh, as part of its bargaining uh, with the West, uh, upped its um, purity rate uh, of um, uranium enrichment to 60%. You have to have 90% for an effective uh, bomb uh, material. Uh, this is actually about sabotaging uh, the talks that are going on in Vienna, not direct talks between the United States and Iran, but nevertheless, to me at least, um, it seems clear that the United States under Biden wants a deal, and at present Iran too wants a deal. Whether they can do it, uh, that's an entirely different question, and clearly Israel is acting in an extremely provocative manner um, to actually prevent it. So you don't just have an attack on nuclear facilities, you have attacks on Iranian ships. Uh, Iran has retaliated, but again, at a low level. Uh, it could easily escalate and things get out of hand. And that's exactly what Israel uh, wants. And all I would say, if anyone is tempted uh, to imagine that it's Israel that wags the American dog, uh, I think that's a profound mistake. It's America that's in charge. Okay, it's got a, a satrap, it's got a, um, a reliable ally that can act independently, but there is only so much room for manoeuvre uh, that Israel has before it's slapped uh, into line uh, by the United States. Um, and if it acts too much, uh, too provocatively, I think that's what would happen. The United States would be very how should we put it, careful about doing that, but it's the United States that's in charge. It's the United States that's the world hegemon, uh, not Israel, not the, uh, the Zionist lobby, uh, let alone uh, Jewish money and other stu such stuff. Uh, Raul Castro has announced his retirement from the leadership of the Communist Party at the ripe old age of 89. I think all of us of a certain generation can not only, you know, you have to have a certain admiration um, um, of uh, the Cuban, Cuban revolution. I mean, I've read my Che Guevara, you know, about the journey on grandma and, um, you know, the grab the ammunition box as opposed to the medical box. Um, this guerrilla force up there in the uh, in the mountains coming into Havana, but I've also read accounts that make it quite clear uh, that although it had the appearance of uh, a triumph of, um, you know, a small group of guerrillas uh, that overcome uh, a conventional army, what you also had is a very highly organized working class in Cuba, uh, because what you had is the production of uh, um, sugar going way back into the history of uh, Cuba on an industrial scale. And uh, you didn't have peasant agriculture, you know, uh, you had industrialized uh, agriculture. And so you had a class consciousness amongst the rural population, but you also had a high advanced level of class consciousness uh, amongst the urban population uh, as well. Um, and therefore you had this party, which was a highly opportunist party, uh, the Popular Socialist Party, which was the name of uh, the Cuban Communist Party. Uh, and the, the Castros uh, came in. Remember, Fidel 
declared himself, and I believe what he said, I'm not a communist. It was uh, Kennedy, the United States, that turned against him. Uh, but Raul Castro and Che Guevara viewed themselves as communists. Um, I don't know what sort of communists. I would suggest nearer to Mao sort of communism uh, than Khrushchev communism. Either way, uh, uh, Fidel Castro comes around uh, to that view and withstands um, U.S. Uh, assassination attempts, U.S. blockade, uh, the, even the collapse of the Soviet Union, which is quite uh, amazing. Of course, Cuba remains desperately poor. You know, I've been told by people who regularly visit Cuba that, you know, writing paper is in short supply. Pencils uh, are in short uh, supply. Uh, and yet what you have uh, is a country uh, that can train doctors, a country, I haven't got the figures uh, right at hand, but I'll come to them, uh, that's um, put up, uh, you know, a fantastic fight against COVID, but actually has a higher level of health than the United States, you know, in terms of, uh, I'm not saying it's the richest country uh, in the world, uh, but historically, it's been the richest country in the world. Cuba has a better health system and a better, um, you know, health regime in terms of longevity uh, than the United States. Uh, I would say, uh, on the other hand, that uh, Cuba, for me, isn't an example of uh, socialism. You know, it's a one party uh, system. Um, you've had the Castros in power since 1959. It's a bit like, I, I know they have elections, but the people you can vote for are chosen beforehand. Uh, and the very fact that he's retiring at the age of 89 uh, does say something to me. You know, however remarkable someone is at 89, um, wow, uh, that is an age uh, indeed. Will Cuba collapse now? Uh, I don't know. Um, you know, I mean, it survived in part because of itself, in part, actually, paradoxically, because of the blockade and uniting the population against the Yankee uh, imperialists. It's also survived because of good luck uh, in terms of uh, Venezuela, uh, uh, for example. Who knows? What I do know is that the system that was established uh, under Fidel Castro has increasingly gone in the direction of China, and Vietnam, um, you know, towards um, some sort of uh, uh, capitalistic uh, uh, direction. How far it's gone, uh, I don't know. Um, you know, you'd have to study uh, the facts and the figures. You'd have to maybe even visit it uh, to find out. Having spoken about COVID-19, we passed the grisly uh, milestone of three million, three million uh, deaths uh, worldwide. And, uh, you know, when I first wrote about COVID-19, in part, I was sort of um, trying to find out, you know, what's this all about? And uh, I sort of confidently predicted, you know, grimly, uh, that, um, you know, if you look at the West, it's going to be the poorer countries that where it's really going to devastate. And in the first wave, it didn't happen. It was Europe uh, that was the heart of it. It was uh, Britain which was ranked, you know, in terms of uh, the League of Shame, in terms of infections, how to bungle it in terms of deaths. Uh, America was way behind even Britain in terms of the rate of death, the rate 
uh, of of infection in Europe. I don't think any, there was nothing like it other than uh, Belgium. And maybe there are special factors and statistics in terms of how they count in Belgium. Either way, Europe was in the heart uh, of this pandemic. China contained it. China uh, dealt with it. It was Europe. And it has to be said, out of the three million deaths, one million uh, of them are Europeans, which is amazing, uh, given that Europe is uh, historically an advanced society, broadly speaking, certainly when it comes to Western Europe, social democratic in the widest uh, sense in terms of having decent health system, um, you know, some sort of social services, something like that, to have a million deaths in Europe, you know, Italy, Spain, Britain, France, um, disgraceful. And that's government disorganization. Um, I, I don't think there's any other explanation. And I think we ought to be feel justified when we use Frederick Engels's term social murder uh, when it comes to European politicians uh, such as Boris Johnson or when it comes to American politicians uh, such as Donald Trump. Okay, so where are we now at? Well, we're hitting um, in the so-called developing world I don't know whether it's second wave, third wave, uh, but what we've got is a massive, massive leap uh, in infections and deaths. And um, so we actually have a situation uh, of where um, in the United States, um, the figure is um, 300, no, 580,000 uh, deaths, all right? Now remember, the United States got a very big uh, population. Uh, it's almost as big as the whole of the EU, almost as big as the whole of the EU uh, put, put together. So remember, one million deaths um, in, in Europe. And okay, I know that includes uh, Norway and stuff like that, but basically the EU, and if you bung in Britain into that, one million uh, deaths. So in terms of the world leader at the moment in deaths, I've got down at least, it's the United States. But clearly there are those in contention uh, for taking uh, over that uh, horrible uh, title. And obviously I've got in mind Brazil uh, uh, at the moment with um, 369,000 deaths. And obviously the rate is uh, skyrocketing uh, there with its uh, idiot uh, uh, president uh, attacking the population for whining uh, about uh, COVID. But then we have India, still a long way behind, but with 177,000 uh, deaths. But again, we're looking at a huge, staggering uh, increase, and it shouldn't surprise us uh, that variants um, are occurring uh, in India and in Brazil. And, you know, we had a talk last week from uh, uh, Dr. Massen saying that there are only a limited number of uh, variations, uh, but from a virus's point of view, it wants to survive. And if you've got vaccinated, uh, the one that can get around that vaccination, the one that can survive and carry on reproducing in spite of you having that vaccination, that's the one that we should fear in Britain. So although Britain has been a great success story uh, when it's come to the vaccination uh, program, Thanks again, as uh, Masen has uh, pointed out, to the NHS and not, not uh, private um, health um, um, industry or anything like that. It's been a collective effort 
by the existing NHS machinery and volunteers and scientists who demanded of AstraZeneca a no-profit deal uh, uh, with the government and the government actually massively over-ordering, good, massively over-ordering before these uh, uh, drugs were proven. And we've seen the failure of some drugs. So it's a correct approach to take. So the French uh, vaccine, for example, proved to be a total failure. I'm not dismissing French scientists and saying they're all idiots, but that is what happens when you develop a vaccine. You don't know at the beginning whether your approach will work. You don't know how effective it's going to be. You don't know what its side effects are going to be. So there's obviously a big debate at the moment about blood clots. And to me, I wouldn't hesitate in having my second vaccine. I don't care what sort it is, you know. Uh, but yes, if you've got a choice and you happen to be a woman, it might be worthwhile uh, not having AstraZeneca. And given that you've got the choice, hey, sensible. Ditto if you're young, ditto if you're a child. But the chance of you getting a blood clot, of course, as the scientists have pointed out, you've got more chance of getting a blood clot if you get COVID-19 than if you get the vaccine. Massive more chance. Anyway, let's have a look at some other figures, because, of course, there will be those uh, that say, well, it's capitalism. It's capitalism uh, that's the cause. And um, uh, this is the explanation of why the United States, Brazil, uh, India, uh, has had um, um, such a terrible, terrible uh, pandemic, why they've handled it so appallingly with, you know, criminal irresponsibility. Well, I'm going to give some other uh, figures for those that think that way. Japan, 9,500 deaths. Now, this is a country with a considerably larger population than Britain. It's got a population, I don't know what, but pretty much well over 100 million uh, people, but 9,500 deaths. South Korea may be a country slightly low, below uh, Britain's population, but it's not a tiny uh, country. 1,700 uh, deaths, 1,700. Taiwan, definitely a capitalist country. I don't think anyone would dispute that. 11 deaths, 11 deaths. Think about that. And then we have um, China, where the outbreak began. 4,000. Is it? Yeah, well, let me get it right. Um, yeah, that would be. I don't know. I'm gonna, I think it's 4,600. I think that's I think I, that's what I've noted down. So I was just questioning. I was thinking about how, how big uh, China is. So, yeah, 4,600. Cuba, I've mentioned Cuba. 512. Vietnam, 36. Now, what that tells me, right, what that tells me isn't that it's capitalism, but it's organization. It tells me that you can get governments uh, that put in plans. You know, um, we expect we, we expect a pandemic. So let's put the infrastructure in. Whoops. Don't know what happened there. Let's put the infrastructure in. Britain didn't do it. The United States didn't do it. And disgracefully, Western Europe didn't do it. But Taiwan did, South Korea did, and other countries did, and China did. So if you're prepared, um, you can be hit by this pandemic, uh, as these countries were. Um, um, but look at the, look at the difference. It, it, it's just stunning. And so that tells me something about the nature of organization. And of course, you know, socialism 
uh, is precisely the organization, the planning uh, of societies. But so it tells you that the working class need to take over that aspect uh, of capitalism. It's, as I argued before, when Lenin looked at the German war economy, which could double more or less overnight its war production in 1916 because of state organization, and they called it themselves in order to placate their social democracy, the high command called it war socialism. Lenin looked at it and said, we can do that. We can have that. We can organize Russia along the lines of war socialism. We can actually feed people. We can house people. Uh, we can run the society. We're not a fully developed socialist uh, society, uh, but with the rule of the working class and by getting rid of the capitalists, that is what we can do. And that should be our approach. So we need to be both mourning uh, and condemning politicians on the one hand, but we also need to be looking at where you have handled the pandemic, pandemic well and looking at the scientists and the big pharma that wasn't working on a for-profit basis, like AstraZeneca wasn't working on a for-profit basis, and say that this wasn't the market. It's the other side that have been forced to throw away their economic uh, textbooks. Uh, we haven't. Uh, this confirms our uh, economic uh, uh, textbooks, um, and I think I'll, I think I'll leave it there, Stan. So I don't know whether that's a, um, a finish on a high note or a low note, but I personally view it as a high note. There's hope for us, in, even in the middle of this pandemic.